This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey entrepreneurs, my name is Felix and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Fran Dunaway from TomboyX.com explains why their revenue tripled after narrowing their focus to just one product line. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that has figured out how to generate early success on Amazon. In this episode, you'll learn how to successfully crowdsource a logo on 99designs.com, how to effectively communicate with a designer when you yourself aren't a designer, and the key Amazon SEO factors for increasing your product listings rankings. Today, I'm joined by CJ Force and Ryan Gresh from thefeelgoodlab.com. The Feel Good Lab sells health and wellness products designed for today's world and was started in 2015 and based out of Los Angeles, California. Welcome, CJ and Ryan. Hey there, Felix. Thanks for having us. Hey, Felix. Hey, okay. So let's talk a little bit about these products you sell. So health and wellness products. Give us an idea of what are these products and and what kind of um, problems do they solve? So, um, yeah, I'm over here located in in Connecticut. I think you mentioned earlier that the business is located on California, but um, grew up here and CJ and I were actually close friends um, since college. And I grew up in uh, the health and wellness field because my father owned a pharmacy, but it wasn't really your typical pharmacy. Um, they really focused on natural medicine, compounding pharmacy, and focusing on functional health where you're looking to solve the root cause of the problem and not really just solve it with pharmaceuticals. So early on, I mean, when I was six years old, I was always working there, uh, behind the scenes and kind of seeing some of the things that they worked with a lot of natural medicine. And as I got older, uh, my dad transitioned full time into specializing in topical pain relief, and um, I would say, wow, two years ago, uh, he kind of had the idea that well, he was making this natural topical pain relief cream in his pharmacy. Uh, he'd made it for about ten years now, and kind of specialized and got the formula exactly where he wanted it, and he wanted to take the product to market. Um, so that is quite a long process, especially when you consider the FDA regulations and such in the field. Um, and so back then, they went through all of the different approvals to get the product FDA approved through the quality requirements, uh, the good manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. And when they got everything kind of finalized and went to, to launch the product, they realized they didn't quite know how to market and brand it. Um, and so that's where I'll kind of punt back over to CJ, where I called him up. It's been two years now and kind of pitched him across the country because I knew what his skill set was and what my skill set was. And I kind of pitched this unique idea that he had no idea really about what my father does. Um, but I knew there was an opportunity with kind of the skills that we bring to the table and this awesome product that he had developed. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, picking up where, where Ryan left off, it was just, just for context, you know, what I do uh, at my day job. And we're, we're, we're doing this right now as kind of a side hustle gig, uh, I work at an ad an ad agency, so I do strategy at an ad agency. And so, when Ryan kind of presented this idea, hey, my dad's jamming on this thing. He's got this really cool product. He's getting really good results. 
the only thing kind of missing from the equation is the brand identity and the marketing aspect to kind of set this thing off. And so we took a look at it, did a little bit of strategy and said, hey, um, you know, there is a huge opportunity here. Uh, it just needs a little bit, you know, a little work on the voice, right? And, um, you know, that's a, <laughs> Ryan and my answer is the, is, the, is the long answer for, you know, fast forward to today. And we've kind of created this brand around the Feel Good Lab and our flagship product is a, is a product called U Plus Relief. And uh, we deem it as, as earth, like, you know, from the earth, earth's most powerful uh, pain relief cream or muscle and joint rub. Mm. Yeah, beautiful packaging. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the product today, a product right now, and it looks beautiful. And we'll get into a little bit more about packaging in a bit. Um, so Ryan and his uh, family, uh, family business, they created this product and they reached out to you, CJ. What, what did you particularly see about the market or about the, the product itself that made you you said, yes, I'm on board. Like, did you see anything about the, did you do any kind of research to find out that it was going to be a, a worthwhile market? Yeah. So it's really, it's great. I'm so happy you mentioned that. So the the first thing that we did, I, I mean, it, it, my first reaction, honestly, was uh, skepticism. So, you know, oh, here we go. Another pain relief cream. How many of those are there on the market? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it needed a little bit more validation. So right, exactly what you said, like, where's the, where's the research um, and one of the things that we did, and one of the very first things that we did, was uh, contacted Ryan's brother, who was still at, in college. And um, you know, fortunately, he had access to the university library, right, and database. And so we were able to get access to a Mintel report. You know, this is something that it's like a forty-five hundred dollar report that you know we had the luxury of of looking at, and it was on the uh, topical pain relief market. And uh, the the interesting thing that we found there which was, it was almost like, it, it was crazy. It was like a jaw dropping. Uh, I, I still remember to this day opening up that report and you, like, you got to be kidding me because what the report told us was, hey, this market just in general, the topical pain relief market versus, you know, oral taking, you know, like an Advil or something like that is growing. Um, but also the niche within that would was all natural. So people were really valuing, you know, what they put in and on their body from, you know, natural versus a synthetic standpoint. And we're like, you got to be kidding because this is exactly what we, what has landed in our lap. And so that, once I saw that report was like, I am, I'm all in. Uh, and then you take a look at what's out there in the market, you know, what's the competition look like? If you look at, you know, what an, uh, what traditional, let's call topical pain relief, uh, competitors are doing, you know, they're putting it in a white bottle or tub and then just selling it to you and you're on your own, right? Like, here you go, figure it out, rub it on, hope it works. And we're like, there's, there's such a better way, right? There's so much information and value that you can provide to the, to the consumer in the sense of like, don't just rely on the, on rubbing it on and hoping that works. You know, you can pair the use of, uh, a medicine with exercises, stretches, um, a different showering technique, for instance, and get way better results. So we approach this right from the beginning of like, yeah, we happen to sell this pain relief cream, but really what we're trying to do is help you get better. And that's kind of how we backed out to let's create 
the brand and the company first. And that was, that's the story for the feel good lab versus start with a product and try to sell a product. Right. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So this, uh, Mintel report, I, I believe I've heard this too, when I was back in school, like the access to these reports, I didn't realize it was that, uh, that valuable or expensive. Uh, so if someone was able to get uh, their hands on something like this for their industry, was it an easily readable report or did you have to decipher it? Like what tips do you have on once you're able to get your hands on a report like this, how do you even uh, look at it to, to glean actionable, I guess, tips from it? So most of these reports, like like a Mintel or a Forrester or a Gardner, is like they're, they make it very actionable. I mean, that's their business. So they'll literally have in the sections, like here's all the stuff that we found. And then they'll have a summary by section of like, here's why you should care or here's what you should do as a company or as a marketer. Um, so to answer your question, it was, it was very easy. It was just staring at us in the face. And I think that's why it was such a jaw-dropping moment. Makes sense. Okay, so you you mentioned uh, earlier about how a lot of the the competitors in a the space they just uh, slap into like a white plain tub and throw it at you. And it, I think the reason behind this was because is because typically when you're solving a very serious pain point, like literally you guys are solving a pain in this case, people are often very forgiving about the branding, right? You don't walk into a a store and like you know your arms you walk to hospital, your arms falling off. You don't care about how the hot the you know particular packaging of the hospital or whatever it is you just kind of want that pain to go away so but you guys do do a great job the packaging looks amazing what made you decide let us focus on the packaging and the branding rather than just put it in the tub like the other folks were doing and selling it that way i mean i think there's there's a couple of reasons for that um one it's just and my advice to anybody listening would be you can look at you can look at markets just like ours and there's tons of them of where it's exactly what you said I have a pain and the only thing that matters is if if that thing solves my pain in our mm-hmm. case it's quite literally a pain and you can say you know what it it do, experience matters and and the and the experience of unboxing something and the way that it makes you feel it, you know that matters so there's all these different industries out there and markets that have that opportunity exactly like mm-hmm. ours that are not in the medicinal side. The other thing, I mean, just w- what sparked that was honestly, it, w- it was a it was a different podcast um, that was centered on um, like private labeling, right? And it was there's a bunch of there, you know, t- I think it's kind of started maybe three years, maybe five years ago. This whole trend of private labeling products. Um, sourcing them from China via Alibaba or whatever. And if you literally just create a better experience, an unboxing experience, a packaging experience, the truth is that, you know, that has a great effect on the perceived value of a product. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that we looked at it. It's like uh, the the way that we thought of it is a great product, especially in in our market, is table stakes, right? It's got to work. That's like if you want to compete, your product has to work. Um, But then the the way that we think of it is you know and the reason for that is because nothing will kill a great product faster or a, or a bad product faster than great marketing right so then we went from that to okay well how do we differentiate and the the thing that was glaringly obvious was the, everybody's putting it in this white tube and nobody's helping people get the best results mm, makes sense okay so let's talk about the building of of a brand because I think this is a stage that a lot of entrepreneurs are at either very early on or maybe they're already pretty far along in their business but never really dedicated the time maybe the the weeks or however long it takes to 
craft that brand identity. So talk to us about how you began. So you, you got this product that, like you're saying, table stakes, it works. How do you begin to build a brand around a, a product like that? So we kind of backed out of it, reverse engineered, right? So we knew we had a really good product because Ryan's dad had kind of validated it through using it with his patients and all that. It was just kind of lacking a brand identity. And so to back out of it, um, we, we actually referred to, and I love this, I talk about it all the time, is Simon, Simon Sinek's golden, golden Circle, right? So anybody who's listening should definitely go YouTube that right now and listen to it. And that's talking about, you know, uh, why do you do things as a company? How do you do them as a company? And then what do you do, right? And so we looked at it as, hey, we got this awesome, all-natural muscle and joint rub. We know it works. And then if we backed out of that and said, what would a co- what would a company be? You know, what kind of company would would create that product? And 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 then um, we we kind of zoomed out of like, well, it's a company that would be trying to help people feel good, and that's you know the uh, uncreative, I guess, or conversational name of the feel good lab came out of right. And the reason I think that is so important is because we never wanted to be just a pain relief cream company. That was never, ever the vision. And it was like, so we need to back out of that. So now we've pivoted to, we kept the feel good lab who just happens to make a great pain relief cream. And now it's opened us up. And now we're kind of, we're working on right now today of like, what's going to be the next product, you know, our product pipeline. Gotcha. So you you have this uh, this vision for where you want the the business to be, the the brand to be. Like you're saying, you're backed uh, into it. You went back. You worked backwards. You had this grand vision for what the end result would be, and then you figured out how can we begin with just this product today. So when you sat down and des- decided to design the the look of it, because I'm looking at it now, and I don't recommend anyone that that's listening go eventually check out the, the site, thefeelgoodlab.com, because I really like this packaging. Uh, how do you begin to design this? Design uh, the I guess, the I guess the assets around the identity of the brand. So the first thing that we did, just because you know I'm fortunate enough to be from the ad agency world, so my network includes a bunch of designers and art directors, and so um, one of my friends from an agency that I worked with her at, I, I just you know gave her a call and said, hey, do you want to work on something freelance for us? Um, we have this idea. Uh, let's talk about who we're targeting. And uh, she helped us with the packaging design and gave us kind of the friends and family discount, if you will, to uh, to get it done. I think you could replicate the same exact experience using an Upwork.com or something like that. One of the things that we did was uh, we focused on at the beginning using just you know the the research, the data that we had from Mintel, from just kind of anecdotal research online of like who we thought our target audience was, you know kind of trying to sketch out what a persona was, our best guess at that time. We now know it's a little bit different from when we started. And we said, let's create a product for them. So you'll notice that the packaging is kind of gender neutral, right? If if anything, it might slant a little bit more on the feminine side because we we wanted to create a general neutral product. We we you know, it was really hard to kind of remove Ryan and I to remove ourselves from the equation. Obviously, you know, we're both male and and we are predisposed to liking more masculine type branding and look and feels. And we had to kind of realize like, you know, this is, this is probably a a product that it's a, it's a product that definitely needs to be gender neutral. So one of the things that our designer did was she literally went to uh, a bunch of different stores, you know, Target, Nordstrom's, all these different stores and and just took a, uh, an audit of all the, all the different products that were targeting people that we thought were our target audience and just, 
took a snapshot of you know what these products looked like and what design elements that they were using, and they said, okay, if you look at all those, where what do we kind of what do we like, what do we don't like, and then how do we differentiate? And that's kind of how we that's how we came up with the look and feel for the the packaging. So I think the 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 when someone takes this approach of looking at what's already out there and then trying to uh, create a a brand, create a, a design, create a look that that seems like it would fit on the same shelves. I guess one of the potential issues is that you might make it look too similar to what's already out there. So how do you balance between making it look like it will fit in on that shelf and not kind of you know stand out as like an item that you would never even consider, and then also stand out enough so that it doesn't kind of fade into the background. I think, you know, I'm, I'll take this one, CJ. I think we had a unique opportunity because nobody had really come into the health and wellness, especially the pain relief cream, but even pain relief in general, and try to bring a premium product. So all we had to do was look at a different category. Um, you look at beauty, for instance. Almost every single one of their products are marketed to be mm-hmm. um, premium. And so we really just focused in on the beauty products and just found the ones that kind of had the health and wellness and made you feel good and gave us the feeling we wanted. And we just transitioned that over um, and kind of copied it. And with no expectation that nobody can, when you look on Amazon, um, it becomes very clear that we stand out. And we did that on purpose. Right. So you went to almost get a different aisle, I guess. You know, we we're talking about walking into a store uh, where your target market was shopped. You almost went to a totally different aisle to the, to get the inspiration for uh, what you would design your products look like. Exactly. I think that's totally. And then just one thing to add there. One of the things that, that um, you might even notice on on the front of the of the tube design. I mean, this is something that's just kind of special to us and probably, you know, people shopping would never notice, but we wanted to create a design that kind of meant something, had a reason to be. And so that front, the kind of apothecary type look on the front of that tube was inspired by the prescription that a doctor would write for his or her patients, right? And so that gives it like if anybody, basically what we were trying to do is create a packaging that if you asked us, you know, why did you do that? We would have an answer to. And like that, the, the front of that tube, we have an answer to. We created that because it's supposed to replicate a prescription note from a from a doctor or a physician. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, I can, I can see that. So you, for anyone out there that wants to take this, the same process you guys took where they worked with the designer to, to help build out their packaging. Um, what, what kind of, I guess, uh, do you need a, a specific design? or a different designer for all of these specialties, like from the packaging to 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 design of the website. Like, can you work with just one designer to put all that together, or do you need a specific specialized designer for all of the, the different uh, avenues, the different channels that your brand identity would appear on? Mm, that's a that's a really good question. So I think it, it, it <laughs> the answer to these types of things is always like depends, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you could play it two ways. I think we were really lucky because I knew the designer and I knew she was going to be awesome. And she's just a great communicator and knew and could understand. And we could just brainstorm together. I think, uh, uh, for this, I would actually point to our logo design. Our logo design was done by 99designs.com. And that was great because it was just a, you know, just an abundance of different variations and concepts to choose from. And then we could distill it down I, I mean, I, I couldn't recommend that approach enough for just p- package concepting if you're doing packaging design. And then what you could probably do is go through a 99designs, 
and get all those concepts, pick the ones that you like and take the rough concepts and then go to whoever is the, um, the packaging, you know, the manufacturer, right? So whether it's local or somebody in, in China or something like that and say, Hey, here's the concept. Can you give me a quote and an estimate and, uh, you know, tell me how feasible it is. Right. Mm, okay. makes sense. So, um, nine on designs, a great, a great, uh, avenue for anyone out there that's looking to, Essentially, crowdsource uh, lots of great designs for your uh, your your logo or or your brand. Um, tell us a little more about your experience on there. Like, do you remember how much you? Or maybe to quickly explain, it's basically a contest, right, where everyone can submit um, a design for whatever you're looking for, and then you choose a winner. Um, so, do you remember how much you spent on the the contest itself? Yeah, we spent, I think it was, we at the time, you know, this was the, one of the very first things that we did because it's the logo, right? Uh, so it was a little bit of a tough pill to swallow, but it, I think it was, I think it was 500. I think we shelled out $500 for that logo design. But, you know, we kind of said to ourselves, I mean, this is the logo that we're going to be staring at, you know, hopefully forever, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or a variation of it. So let's just pony up the dough at uh, up front. Um but the, 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 I seriously can't recommend that experience uh, enough. It's $500. It might seem expensive, to, um, but again, it's the logo you'll be looking at forever. Um, the one thing, the advice that I can give is um, you're going to get out of 99designs what you put in, meaning you have to stay engaged. So uh, I think we, I can't remember the number exactly, but we, we actually, we didn't get 99designs. I think we got closer to like 250designs. Wow. And, and the reason was because we just kept every day we would go in there and give feedback and direction and go rounds and rounds with all the you know different designers submitting their work. And so we just said so many different submissions through the process, which was just incredible. And then we were able to refine it from there. Um, and then what happens is uh, then you get to work with kind of. I take a handful, if I'm remembering correctly, you work with a handful of designers a little bit more closely and you can take the design a little bit uh, further. And um, the final delivery, which is awesome, is they give you all the design files that you need for um, online uses or printed uses. So you have all those you know, native files for, you know, if you're printing t-shirts, uh, that, you know, and a t-shirt vendor asks you for this type of file, like an illustrative file or something or whatever, you'll have it. If you're printing a billboard, for instance, you'll have the vector art or something like that. So it was, it was really great. Cause that's the one skill set that, um, Ryan and I do, we are missing is creating production ready files for either the packaging vendors or, you know, anybody printing something, I, we just don't know how to do that. So we'll, that's where we'll always need to hire a designer. Mm-hmm. So in terms of setting up this contest in a way where you can, you know, get as much uh, out of it as you put in, uh, what, are you, what, what kind of information do you give these uh, designers right off the bat? Because there's kind of a wizard that they walk you through asking you questions about, you know, basically trying to get you to put into words what you're looking for. But I think uh, if, you, if design is not your background, if, you know, being creative or being artsy is not your background, it's kind of really hard, right, to to get out what you what you want. And sometimes you don't even know what you want. You just want someone to tell you this looks good or not. So any advice there on how you can communicate your thoughts on what you want designed, uh, especially if you don't come from a background of, this, of design? For sure. So um, I, I know we'll probably talk about it later, but you know, what tools do we use and that we rely on mm-hmm. is uh, PowerPoint. And it's like, we kind of think of it as the poor man's Photoshop, right? 
And so one of my, my advice to, to any, because uh, we work with photographers too, so it's the same exact problem. How do you communicate what your vision is without being prescriptive, right? How, you don't want to tell the artist or the designer exactly what to do and get your own idea fed back to you. Mm-hmm. So my, my advice would be, um, one, go, go out there, do a bunch of Googling and figure out what you like and just take screenshots of it and put it into a PowerPoint deck, right? Get it all aggregated or, 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 and in one place. And then you start to look for like patterns and clusters, right? And you kind of think of it as kind of a spectrum. So I'll just use photography as an example here. So if the photography on our website, if you go, go there, it's light and airy, meaning that it's a lot of white space um, and, and it's not a lot of heavy colors. So if you had done the same exact photo shoot and put everything on dark wood, that would give that website a much different feel. It would give it a heavier feel. So one of the things that we did for the photography, like to brief our photographer, was we collected a bunch of photos that were heavy and, and kind of dark, still nice, and then we collected a bunch of photos that were light and airy and shot on you know light marble and things like that. And we said, if this was a spectrum from dark to light and airy, or heavy and dark to light and airy, we want to go more on the spectrum of light and airy. So that's what, even for a logo, you could say, let me collect, a, and, and, the, and the wizard on 99designs kind of does, tries to do this for you, but I think that you can take it, it's very limited. So I would go out there and look at, especially in your category, right? Um, because the logos will look a certain way in, a diff, in each category. And I would just collect them all and then see if you can cluster and be like, these are the ones that I gravitate towards and I like, and these are the ones that I don't like. And if it was kind of a slider from left to right, tell the designer or the photographer or whoever, I want you to go more on this side. Mm, I like that approach because I feel like without going through that exercise, it would be very hard to even determine what you like or what you don't like. This is a step-by-step approach where you can take by, you know, carefully or slowly curating a bunch of things that you like or maybe even things that you definitely want to stay away from. And over t- by just doing going through that process, you have a better understanding of what you like and what you want uh, created for your brand identity, which you might not know where at, uh, you know from before going through the exercise. So I really like like. like that approach i think what you my advice to anybody giving direction to a creative uh because this is exactly what i do in my day job is you want to define the rules and the guidelines but you don't want to tell them what to do does that Mm -hmm. make sense Mm -hmm. yeah definitely Cool. So now when you have all of these designs made, you said that next step was have production ready, uh, essentially pack, production ready uh, images and assets so that it could uh, be pre-produced. So what was that step like? You know, so you have all of these assets from 99 Designs, from the designers that you work with. What's next? Like, how do you get this and actually, you know, print it in, 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 on this on the packaging? So the first step is we identified a packaging manufacturer. We actually did, we did it uh, local in California. And um, we, we, before we created the production-ready files, we sent the concepts, um, pretty, pretty well-baked concepts, to the, um, to the packaging producer and uh, kind of worked with them for a little bit, put the, put the designer on hold for, you know, in a holding pattern for, for a week or two and uh, worked with the packaging company. They got us the templates for here, you know, they, I think they sent, um, it was either, I think it was InDesign files. They say, here's the templates that you need to design to. These are the, the die cut templates. And then we sent those to our designer and we said, hey, you need to put your design and concept into these templates mm-hmm. and uh, then sent it to the production company. We actually put the, um, 
the, the, the manufacturer of the packaging in direct contact with our designer because they were speaking a completely different language than we could understand. Right. Rather than playing the middleman, just connect the two and, and, and have them kind of figured out rather than having to communicate through you, especially if you don't know, like you're saying, the language that they're speaking. Uh, so that makes sense. Okay. So now you have the, the packaging done. You have the product ready. You have everything, I guess, ready to go. You guys first launched on Amazon. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Very cool. So tell us about uh, launching on Amazon. Like, What did you do? And, and I just kind of preface this. You guys have over 220 reviews, all very positive reviews. And also it says you're number one bestseller in your category. So we'll go into a little bit more about uh, reviews and all that. But talk to us about the beginning. How did you guys launch on Amazon? What was that process like? Brian, you want to take that one or no? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, what's kind of interesting about our product selection um, it was a long lead time. We had to order the tubes from China. We had to get it manufactured in an FDA-approved facility in Miami. So the logistics was about six months. And so we had a long time to research how we were going to launch on Amazon. And if anybody's uh, affiliated with Amazon FBA, there's a lot of content out there. So we were ready to rock. We got all these packages boxed up, shipped into Amazon, and we were just tapping our feet to launch our page. And next thing you know, we get denied. Um, this was about a year into it, significant money. We had 5,000 units of inventory and, uh, over the next two weeks, we continued to reapply, 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 and could not get in, could not get approved by Amazon system. Um, they had actually shut down the entire health and wellness category because of the fear of, uh, you know, were lesser companies, private labeling products and not having the control over the supplement category. And so they locked out everything. Um, and so CJ and I went into kind of panic mode, but what we did was just pure persistence. Um, we reapplied every single second that we got denied and we would call up customer service and talk to them and see if we could escalate our case. And over the course of about, it was 32 days, um, we finally got approved. And as we understand it still today, that category is almost impossible to get into, uh, as a brand. So it was pure luck, um, pure luck or timing the fact that we got locked out. However, the persistence, we just were not going to be denied from Amazon. And so from that day forward, we had put so much work into just getting approved over the 30 days. We carried that momentum forward and really had a pretty uh, awesome launch where we got friends and family. Um, every person that we talked to over the you know last six months, you know, we're excited and telling about the product. And it's because by getting momentum from people that you meet to go online and purchase the product on Amazon, further builds the momentum within the Amazon system. And so we've seen ourselves skyrocket up the sales charts um, as well as up the search ranking charts, which really go hand in hand. So the whole game on Amazon is getting the right search words and really handling that search uh, engine optimization from an Amazon side. It's a lot different than Google. And if you can win that game, you get your product in front of the right eyeballs and you're going to get sales. And so that's really what we've seen a lot of awesome success for the past uh, really month, we've seen the most success, but the five months leading up to that built the basis with the reviews and the sales to give us um, such a strong leg to stand on right now as we start to really, I mean, we've had our best day ever in sales just today, um, which is quite exciting. So 
Oh, that's amazing. So it sounds like two uh, two prong approach to having success on Amazon. One is to have that very successful launch, getting a lot of momentum early on, so that you essentially get bubbled up uh, by Amazon in their in their search results because they see there's a lot of activity around your particular product. And then number two is the Amazon SEO. I'm assuming that means the keywords, the what you put in the listing itself. So let's talk about the, yes. the preparation for launch. So what what was the window? Like what is what was the window that you're trying to hit to squeeze many, I guess, orders through at, at during, you know, was it the first month, first week? Like how important was it to get a lot of orders through at the beginning? It's funny how that changes so much because early on we thought if we did five to 10 sales a day, um, that was going to be awesome and huge. And so we just had to kind of maintain that momentum. Um, what we learned later on was that really was more like 20 to 30 sales a day to really get Amazon to start taking notice. And so a huge thing that we learned was that Early on, we almost wasted kind of like that launch by not doing it big enough because we were in such a competitive marketplace. And so we were a little bit shy to give away product and try to do things to promote to increase our sales when that was the whole key to our success. And so, you know, three months into it, we decided to really almost do a relaunch and and look at our, our strategy and try to spike our sales to get some more momentum. And this time it really stuck. Very cool. So I think you mentioned uh, maybe in, in the conversation outside the podcast, maybe through email, about this concept of review communities to jumpstart review and social proof of the product. And I think that's very important, right? Getting getting those early reviews because nobody wants to be the first one to try a product. No one wants to you know be the hero and try a brand new product, especially in in a, in, a, in the health and wellness space. You know, it's, it could be potentially dangerous if you're one of the first ones to try it. So obviously, social proof is really important for you. Tell us more about this approach. You know, because I know lately, I'm not sure if this was the case back when you guys started, but lately there's always been a lot of discussions around reviews, right? Amazon's trying to crack down on on reviews. Like, what was your approach towards getting reviews in a way that was uh, you know obviously following Amazon's uh, rules. Just just to even summarize what Ryan was saying, I mean Amazon's the search engine optimization optimization for Amazon is really based on two levers that you can pull. It's it's social proof through reviews, and it's sales and conversion rate, right? So it's like sales and social proof, reviews and how how many people are converting on your page. And so for a launch strategy, even if you're discounting the product down to one dollar, that counts as a a sale, right? And so that's why it's so crucial when you come out the gates is to just rack up these sales um, and then get and then segue those into reviews. And so for the review communities, um, you're absolutely right, Felix. Like Amazon has locked that down, I think, in the last like, let's say, two months. And um, I think as a a consumer or shopper, we might have all seen it of like, hey, you know, I. I was given this product for free in exchange for my unbiased review. Like that's on the bottom of a bunch of reviews. And so that was messing up with, you know, Amazon's shopper experience. So they, they banned that. That's not allowed anymore. Um, fortunately, our strategy was really never about exchanging free product uh, for a positive review. It was really, we looked at it as, you know, we have a finite number of friends and family, right? Let's say our network is only a few hundred to, let's say, generously a thousand people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so if we could extend that network of friends and family to to give product to in exchange for uh, their feedback, uh, you know, that's how we looked at these review communities. And so there's a ton of them. I mean, if you if you did a Google search, you could find a bunch of them. And they've all changed the way that they approach this so that they're most of them are within Amazon's terms of service, so you don't get that. Hey, I I wrote this review in exchange for 
you know, a free product. You don't get that anymore. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, if, if you have something nice to say, we'd love for you to post a positive review. That's great. If you have something negative to state, let us know personally so we can fix the problem. Right. I think that's, that's completely like in line with, uh, Amazon's terms of service. And it's like, give us a chance to fix it before you hit us with a negative review. Mm, makes sense. So, uh, today I'm not sure how, how, how familiar you are with the, those communities today, but what is, uh, what are some ways now to, to get, or to um, increase, I guess, the reviews that you get and also follow Amazon's terms of service? So I think it's, I, I mean, it, there's a bunch of them that I can rattle off that I that I know of, of in terms of like those communities that still exist. I mean, the one that we uh, use is uh, AMZ Tracker. Is, a, is a, It's actually a different tool, but has a review community built into the tool. Um, but I would say my, you can just Google it and find it. I think there's uh, Zonblast is another one. They've all kind of pivoted their businesses. The, you know, these are small little online businesses. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe some of them aren't that little. That used to do, you know, in, in all fairness, they used to do these review blasts of like, hey, you're going to jumpstart your launch on Amazon by getting a, an influx of reviews. And some would some were more shady than others. Um but they've all since the ones that are the shadiest have dissolved um, or dried up. And then the ones that are still standing are the, are the ones that kind of changed their entire way of business and to follow Amazon's term of service. And most of them have their, you know, they're, they're online companies. So they're pretty transparent about on their blog about what they've done to, uh, to accommodate and, or to, to fall or abide by Amazon's terms of service. Okay. So you mentioned, um, the, so to, to get ranked highly with those listings, there's a social proof and then the, uh, the conversion rate. So the conversion rate probably relies heavily on the photos, the, the description, all the content that you put onto the page itself. What tips do you have there? You know, for someone that just launched on Amazon for the first time, wants to put their first product on Amazon, where should they focus most of their attention on to get the most you know, bang for their buck? Yeah, so you're totally right. So I think that's another thing. And like in hindsight, what would we have done differently? And I think that's photo. That's a uh, focus on the product photos uh, earlier. We thought we could do it ourselves with uh, an iPhone and or you know an SLR. We both have an SLR camera, and you know we did our best. Um, but in hindsight, it's just it's not worth the the hassle of trying to perfect it. I would just send that to. There's so many um, there's so many websites out there of photographers that are like just make it the process so simple. We went through productphotography.com. They're they're a small company in Las Vegas, so we sent them one of our products. We had uh, really nice professional photography on white backgrounds. It was done in probably a week and better than anything that uh, and and. You know, not to be arrogant about it, but I, I do have some photography skills, and I couldn't I couldn't replicate this because they just have the equipment, right? Um, so uh, that was that, that's what I would say is just you know, it's one of those things. It's kind of like the logo, right? It was four hundred ninety nine dollars for the logo. I think the product photography spent maybe three to four hundred dollars um, for it was less than ten photos, and you know, to somebody just starting out, that seems like a lot of money, but the photos by far. I think if we look back at the journey here, were the thing one of the things that had the biggest impact on the conversion rate um, on, on Amazon, which I believe right now on our Amazon page we're looking at about a thirty percent conversion to sale from from a visit. 
Wow, that's amazing. So before they get to that page, I'm assuming things like keywords uh, matter a whole deal too. Like what what else other than you know all of this social proof uh, does uh, Amazon take into consideration when they pull up, you know, someone searches, uh, I'm not sure what they, what they would look for specifically for your product, but like how do you make sure that you're one of the top results uh, by making the, the, is it just keyword based or like what is it that you need to focus on technically to make sure that your listing is all in order? I'll take this one. See, um, yep. I, I think the the most important thing from Amazon's algorithm is where the keywords fall within your title. So if your if your product is named U Plus Relief, like ours is, and you search for that, it's going to come right up because it's the first thing in our title. So the closer it is to your product name, uh, the more clout it has. And that's their algorithm's always changing. But I do know from a change we made last week with one of our keywords. Just moving it closer to the title jumped us up 10 spots, and that was an, a whole page in difference uh, and might be the reason why we have the best sales week ever this week. Um, so that's really important. And so there's some tools. One of them is called Merchant Words, and it's uh, I think it costs $30 a month, but it is well worth it when you're starting because you can get access to estimations of Amazon search volumes so you can understand within your category – what the most important search terms are. <clears throat> and I do know that, you know, I think the statistics, 50% of Amazon searches are long tail or have never been searched before, something crazy like that. Um, however, the main keywords are extremely consistent. We have two keywords that make up 70% of our click volume. Um, and so by, by finding out what those are and then by strategizing and building our listing around those and building it to convert for those, we've had a lot of success. Gotcha. So, uh, Ron, you mentioned that you're able to change the the title to make alterations to improve your to test out all of these different keywords and to improve your SEO. And one thing I think uh, it might have been CJ that mentioned to me over email was that Amazon actually changed the title of one of your product listings and spelled the product name wrong, and you were locked out from the listing and couldn't change it. Is that still the case? And you know what what, what happened there? Can I take that one? Like this yeah. is why we're on the Shopify Masters podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that I mean, how insane is it that we're selling our product, you know, through Amazon, and we and and they changed the title of our product, and we can't, and they've spelt it wrong, and we can't do anything about it. I mean, that's just insane. So. You know, that answer is quite a why are we on this podcast right now is because we are trying to we are in the in the middle of migrating off of Amazon to try to get, you know, go direct consumer to, to our own customers. Um, and so just to answer your question, Felix, it's like we did resolve that. But I think it took like two. It was one to two weeks where we had a typo in the in the product name and we couldn't do anything about it because somebody in Amazon at Amazon thought that we were against terms of service. I mean, what the way that Amazon works and it's and I under, we totally understand why, because they're at such a massive scale. I mean, how do you deal with these millions of companies and vendors if you're Amazon mm -hmm. and all these millions of products? So they have to outsource a lot of the work. So you have, you know, people in Africa, India, all around the world that are just have one job. And it's just to take a snapshot look at a listing and say that's out of service or that's out of terms of service denied or something like that. Right. And so then getting a hold of people that actually have the authority to make a change on the listing is really, really difficult. So if anything goes wrong in Amazon, you're at minimum, you're probably looking at two to three days to even get any kind of traction to solve the problem. And that's, 
you know, if our all our eggs are in one basket in Amazon and, you know, that's our livelihood. Now we put food on the table. It's like that is very, very, you know, unnerving. Like it's crazy. So um, it's time to try to migrate over to uh, to create our own business that we have full control of. I mean, and just one thing to piggyback on that, too, you might have covered this in other episodes of the podcast, like Amazon their terms of service that they own the customer. So anybody who buys our product through Amazon, they are not considered a the Feel Good Lab customer. They're considered mm-hmm. an Amazon customer. So we are not allowed to follow up with them and market to them or upsell, cross sell to them whatsoever. If we do that, we will get banned from the Amazon marketplace. Yeah, and that, that, it's amazing how much you take for granted the ability to edit your product listings, be able to create a website and then assume that no one is going to touch it in the next day that I would never even imagine what it would be like to have your listing that you spend so much time on that is essentially the only landing page that you generate revenue from being altered like that and taking multiple days. Actually, you probably didn't even know how long it would take while you're going through it, you know, with all these, with the typo in the the title, the title of the, the actual product. I think that's pretty it must have been pulling your hair out while you're going through that process. Well, not only pulling our hair out, but I mean, we saw our measurable results go into the toilet. Like our sales dropped dramatically um, from that. One, because I think there's just a, you know, somebody sees the listing and there's a typo and it's like, what, you know, what's that about? I'm going to move mm-hmm. on. But the other thing is like, it ruins our SEO of like, now you, the, the word, the keyword that we want to rank for is spelled incorrectly. So we're not ranking anymore. So it, it just killed us for, for like two weeks. Right. Makes sense. So now you obviously want to have a lot of control back. You want to actually own the customer list, own that data, that data, that database of customers by having your own site. Now talk, talk to us about this transition. Like when did you make the move over to owning your own store on Shopify and what was that process like? So we're really, I mean, we're really early in, in that migration. We had, um, one of the first things that we did when we launched just the, the brand and, and our initial strategy was always Amazon, but we knew we needed to have a website. So we were originally on WordPress and uh, we had, you know, a pretty slick template and very customizable and all that. And it, and it was nice. Um, but I think it was it's only been a few months here since we went over to Shopify. And the one thing that I, you know, that, that that's been awesome about it is the WordPress, I will say, it felt very much more customizable than Shopify. But at the same time, because Shopify like kind of limits or it's definitely customizable if you if you know HTML and all that, right? Or, or, or whatever language that they're using. But at the same time, it kind of limits how customizable it is and it and it it almost forces you to create a website and a page that's optimized for conversion. That was one of the things that was pretty awesome when you shop around for the different themes or templates in Shopify, they're all just created to to accelerate sale. And and when you look and shop around for WordPress themes, I would say the majority of them are designed to be blogs, right? And so that's a totally different strategy online of a site that's designed to get people to convert and a site that's designed to get to engage people. And um, so that was one of the things that kind of made it easy. It took it took the decision making out of the equation. So we were just we only had a few options in the in the Shopify template. 
And they said, okay, but this is what we're doing. And uh, by the way, it looks great. We <laughs> It kind of prevented us from messing up the design. Yeah, I think I think one of the interesting things about like WordPress is that it kind of gives you a little bit too much rope to, to hang yourself, right? Because it gives you too much freedom that you just end up putting way too much stuff on there that, like you're saying, doesn't actually lend itself well to conversions. Um, so now that you're on your own site, you know, the, the pros for Amazon is obviously they have a marketplace already. They already have a bunch of customers. Your goal is just to rank highly on there and appear highly ranked in that marketplace. But now that you own your own store, you have your own marketplace, you also are now responsible for driving that traffic there. So what's the approach today? Like, What works for you guys today as you're building out this site? Like, What kind of marketing works to drive the traffic to your own store? Right. So we're, again, we're really early on here. So it's like, you know, I'm not an expert by any means in terms of like, I can't sing you a song about the, you know, amount of leads and stuff that we've generated. But the one thing that's exciting about Shopify um, and then having an actual e-commerce store where we can track to conversion is um, we can optimize our ads on that. Right. So the thing that's kind of crappy about Amazon is because they're not your customers and because you can't tag anything on amazon.com, you can't optimize any any of your media uh, planning against conversion, right? So you're just kind of left to, you know, optimizing on click-throughs, which is is just not good. You, you send people to the Amazon page and you have no idea if the person that clicked the Facebook ad converted into a sale. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. So the thing that we're doing right now is, um, and we're pretty excited about, about it, we've launched only maybe a uh, uh, week and a half ago on this, is uh, Facebook lead gen ads. So we're kind of doubling down on this Facebook lead gen ad, and, and how we're doing it is um, we subscribe to a service uh, called ConvertKit, which I know you've talked about before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And ConvertKit is a really nice uh, user interface for doing some pretty sophisticated automated marketing or um, drip campaigns um, and autoresponders. And um, what we're doing is Facebook lead gen ads, uh, which those are cool because you don't have to send anybody to a landing page, right? So it's somebody clicks the face the lead gen ad, it brings up a Facebook lead capture form, but it's auto-populated with people's information, your name, your email, and and, and whatever whatever you want, right? And all the person has to do is click, okay, okay, you know, I, I agree to sharing my inf- this information with the feel good lab. And what we were able to do is connect that Facebook Legion ad directly with ConvertKit. So nobody, you don't have to leave Facebook to actually become a lead for us. You go right into our marketing automation. Um, and why is that cool? Because it kind of streamlines the, the creation process. So we don't have to create any landing pages. Um, so we're just focusing on doing different versions of the ad and not different versions of the landing page because we kind of stripped that out of the the user experience mm-hmm. or the user journey. So that's what we're doubling down on right now in terms of, you know, it's not, is it driving traffic to the website? Actually, no. And that's not the strategy. It's driving uh, lead capture um, and email um, a registration for mm-hmm. us. Yeah, it's a pretty new, I think, ad format for them, right? The, the lead gen ad. And the, I think one of the hesitations that, that uh, store owners might have is that there's this kind of need for almost instant gratification of sales, right? You want to run an ad, you also want to click on the ad, and then them landing on the product page as deep into the funnel as possible, and then hopefully make a purchase. Uh, but with this approach, the sales funnel is much longer, right? Uh, but obviously a lot more touch points along the way because now you have their email address and you can essentially 
advertised to them for free after that initial uh, lead gen ad. Have you been able to to measure the success at this point? You know, because you've only been running about a week and a half. Have you been able to see if it's been a, a profitable um, avenue for you guys? No, the answer to that is it's too early to tell. We're still in the email collection phase. Um, I mean, people can actually go on our website right now. And what we're driving to is uh, what we've created as a, and this is, it's so funny. Like I, I actually have to like thank you because all this is inspired by this podcast. So what we did was we created um, the Feel Good Challenge. So it's a 10-week video challenge. So it was inspired by whoever was talking about video, like creating video to market to their customers. So what we did was, um, you know, it's a video series that you sign up for. It's all delivered via email and drives you to to our site. Um, and then uh, basically what we're doing is um, uh, just we're driving people to sign up for that. And it was inspired by, I forget who was talking about it, Felix, maybe you can remind me, but somebody said like, uh, it, it was the company that created the, the shoes for, for small children. And they we said, squeak, yeah, Susan Bradley we from squeak. We squeak. Yeah. She's yeah, been, she's yeah. been great so, with emails and all the autoresponders. So the, the thing that inspired and sparked this idea was she said something like, I know once somebody enters or I get their email address, once they enter my whole system or ecosystem, it's a 22% conversion rate. You know, I don't know when that's going to happen, but 22% of people buy something from me. And so if you look at the long-term play, it's like, let's just get their email address and then follow the approach of teach everything we know. And so we're just trying to educate and provide value, like real value. And then, you know, every once in a while say, Hey, you know, thanks for, thanks for following along. You're doing great, and in the challenge that is, and you know, here's something for, you know, here's something for, for to say thanks, right? And it could be a a very a dramatic offer, right? A dis whether it's a discount or a you know some kind of deal of some sort. And so we haven't got there yet because we're honestly in like week and a, you know the 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 um, oldest subscribers are only a week and a half into the challenge, so we're not there yet. We're still in this phase of we're providing value to people. I like this this approach of creating new videos because you know obviously that requires a ton of time to create videos and to create this entire funnel for all of it. But you know ideally it's going to pay off uh, at the end of that that funnel. Um, so how did you know to to create this kind of content? How did you know to create a a, a challenge? Uh, basically a sign up for a challenge. Like what what made you choose that particular kind of hook into getting them into the into your your funnel? I think so. We have I. When you look at you know bloggers and and content marketers and if you're going to sit down and, and write something, I think the inclination is to just set, you know create a there's a there's a trend right that like create an epic blog post for instance right where you're going to yeah. tell them everything that you possibly know. That's great and I think that's one one approach. But when it comes to changing the way that you feel and your health. It's less about having the knowledge of what, like everybody knows what to do, right? Like everyone on this planet knows what it takes to be in great shape. It's diet and exercise. The, we all have the answer, yet 40, you know, 44% of doctors are overweight. And these are the people telling people that they're overweight, right? <laughs> and, the, and the thing that's missing is the approach and, and kind of the, um, it, it, it's, it's the steps and the tools to actually execute, right? And so this feel good challenge was us trying to teach one, teach everything that we know to help people feel good, but also deliver it in a way that they can actually succeed. And the way to do that is to purposely hold back information 
and drip feed it to people. And then actually the first thing is to train people how to form habits, right? Because it's a ha- to feel good and get into a routine where you are in a health and wellness type routine, it's all about habit forming, right? I mean, if any of us, if you've ever went to the gym, right, it's, it's going, it's getting into that groove for the first week or two weeks. That's the hardest part. But once you, once you're in that groove, it becomes much easier. So the whole first part of the challenge is we give you like these little things that, yeah, they're going to help you feel better, but really we're testing and coaching you on how to form a habit. And then the challenge actually gets more difficult as you go on into the weeks. Mm, very cool. So this is not the only kind of funnel you have set up, but you mentioned also outside the podcast about an auto sale, uh, post sales autoresponder you have set up that's so conversational that a lot of people think that is actual real person that's you know conversing with with them. And the goal of this is to collect uh, reviews. So tell us a little bit more about this autoresponder. Is it also set up through ConvertKit? Like how do you have this particular autoresponder uh, configured? Yeah. So I, before we go on to that, I totally want to answer that. I will answer that question. But one thing that I, I mean, just advice for people on, you mentioned, you know, it takes a lot of time to create these videos and everything. And um, one of the things that we did when we're creating this video series that I just think is so valuable is we created a, a bootstrap, like I'm doing air quotes right now, like video studio. It, we bought a white seamless background from, I think, Amazon actually. And it was, you know, maybe 50 bucks or something like that. We bought a lighting kit from Amazon. I think it was less, it was less than a hundred dollars. I have this set up in, uh, in a spare bedroom right now. We leave it set up all the time and the camera set up right there all the time. So all that I need to do is go in there, step in front of the white seamless background, the white backdrop, press record on the camera and record the video. And so basically what we're trying to do, what we do is we batch process these videos. So we'll shoot five, 10 videos at a time versus breaking down all the equipment, having to set it all back up, just trying to remove those barriers from Mm -hmm. actually executing. So I think that's just a really important tip. Like when you're trying to, when you're doing any kind of content generation, Think about how you can batch process it or remove all the barriers that make it painful to actually create that content. Right. Basically, remove all the friction that that might come between you and the content creation mode. Makes sense. I mean, that's the hardest part as an entrepreneur is actually just, you know, we have we all have these great ideas. But it's as Gary Vaynerchuk says, you know, ideas are, you know, I I won't (laughs) I won't curse as Gary V would. But, you know, execution is the game. Right. Right. It's 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 the person that executes that is going to win. But back to your back to your question about the autoresponder and being conversational. um, that is a that's a challenge that I think a lot of people struggle with, and it's and it's the idea of being able to write like you speak, right? Um, a lot of people try are too verbose or use big words or want to sound too professional. I mean, the the advice there is if you can get away with it with your brand and what kind of product or company uh, you are, which is most today, even the most conservative brands today that I see, even in the agency world, you know, are com- are picking up a more conversational tone. And so we wanted to write write our um, autoresponder series in the tone of if I was right, literally, I I addressed the um, when we when we created the initial emails, I addressed it to a friend. So I have another friend named Ryan, coincidentally, and I addressed it to Ryan like I was speaking to him. And I wrote the email that way. Hey, Ryan, you know, just want to check in with you, uh, see what's going on. So wrote it in a super conversational way. And I wouldn't say um you can get away with kind of breaking the rules of correct grammar um, by 
using fra- you know sentence fragments and things like this stuff that you would re- you would say and speak and so we write in that tone and it's just so funny literally every day we will get a response to this autoresponder series like a reply because the autoresponder is in a just text based email of people re- just replying and, and like we're a real person which is 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 really fun and then of course we get the opportunity to actually reply and then we have a conversation going which is nice and we learn learn stuff about our customers awesome so you mentioned a convert kit before uh, for for autoresponders what what other tools do you rely on to to run the the business um, so Con- ConvertKit is the autoresponder on the site. The one that we use that plugs into um, to Amazon is Feedback Genius, which is a really cool tool if anybody's using uh, is on Amazon. Um, I think that t- the- I have a laundry list of, of all the different tools that we use. And I, I just want to go back to this idea of like the-, the number one tool that we have is Google. And I think if people get hung up on this. You know, I don't know how to do something. Uh, so therefore I can't move or I can't execute. And it's just, you know, Ryan and I spend 90% of our time just teaching ourselves how to do stuff. And it's just through Google. There is a resource and a tutorial on how to do any single thing you want to do to create a business. Um, and so like, that's how we found Shopify masters. That's how we found, and we, we are completely self-educated in the Amazon sector. All this stuff is self-taught. Um, as far as tools to keep them going and tools to run a business, the other thing that we, um, at least we at the time, felt like we were an early adopter was Slack. And so Ryan and I live across the country. He lives in Connecticut and I live in Los Angeles, yet we happen, you know, we are running this business together. And um, we adopted Slack early before we even knew what it was. We just, I, I think I literally heard about it on like, uh, Tim Ferriss' podcast and knew a bunch of startups were using it in Silicon Valley and said, Hey, I mean, they're using it Why let's, let's try this thing. So we signed up to start using it. And that has completely changed the way that we communicate. We were barely on email, basically don't use it other than outside communication, uh, to, you know, vendors and stuff like that in the business. Um, the other thing that Slack is amazing for, um, and helps us focus on getting things done is it helps it, 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 it's a tool for cataloging ideas, and so one of the things that we know and actually we struggle with to this day is um, figuring out what ideas we're actually going to pursue and, and, um, and do tomorrow and which ideas are really meant for next year, next month, six months from now. And so Slack, because it, uh, it organizes the ideas and the thoughts when you post them, uh, we can go back to those. So we capture all our ideas there. And then we can go back to them and execute them when the time is right, which is, is really changed the game for us and keep us focused on what matters tomorrow versus, you know, a cool idea that we should really be focusing on a year from now. Awesome. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Slack, too. I think uh, communication like that, that, that's easy and referenceable and searchable is so important because, like you're saying, so many things go back and back and forth. And especially when you guys aren't sitting right next to each other, it can get lost. So I think Slack's a great tool for anyone that has a remote team or even just, you know, two, two co-founders like you guys are that aren't you know next to each other all the time so you know with all of the, the all the the marketing you do all of the tools that you're using can you give us an idea how successful the business has gotten to today for 2016 uh, we launched U plus relief in June uh, beginning of June and so for about six months we're gonna do 50,000 um, which is kind of the perfect number because that would fully pay back uh, the investment that we put in to kind of launch this about a year and a half ago um, and then for projections for next year, uh, we're looking at about 500,000. 
Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing growth. So lots of, uh, sounds like lots of plans for, for the, the coming year. Where do you guys want to see the brand be? Like, I know you mentioned that this is just the first product uh, for your brand. Do you have plans to launch more products in 2017? 100%. So I actually think there's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that we, we kind of have it, have in the pipeline. And that this is, a, you've, you've kind of hit a nerve, Felix, because this is the one thing that we actually get hung up on of, you know, what, what makes sense to execute next. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, th- this is why we're excited about the brand and the company that we've created about, uh, you know, feeling good. And so there's, it, uh, there's definitely some things that um, we have in the pipeline that we're excited about because they'd be products designed for us. So admittedly, you know, uh, Ryan and I are, you know, healthy young guys and, um, you know, we definitely have use for U plus relief and we use it on a regular basis, but we have some stuff that we're kind of cooking up that it's like, these are, would be designed for us. Right. So it's hard to go wrong when you're the target market. So, you know, without going into detail and a cat out of the bag, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of the vision that we have. <laughs> Cool. Awesome. So, you know, thanks so much for your time, CJ and Ryan. So the feelgoodlab.com, again, is the website. Where else should uh, listeners check out? They want to follow along with, you know, your new product releases, just follow along with how you guys are executing as entrepreneurs. Where can they check you out? I think, I mean, they can follow us on Instagram. Uh, Definitely subscribe to the Feel Good Challenge. You just go on our site. It's right there. Um, and I think too, um, you know, Felix, if it's okay with you, I mean, we, we actually, if, we would like to extend an offer to the audience if they want to check out Please. the packaging firsthand. Yeah. So if they go to our website and enter Shopify masters as a promo code, well, you know, they can get 30% off on, on one of the, um, on our U plus relief and it's just, it's an awesome product. And I think it's just be, uh, cool to experience what we've done with the packaging and the, and the user experience there. Very cool. Yeah, I might, I might just go to your site and sign up for that uh, mailing list just to see uh, how you guys uh, create your autoresponders. I think that's a great piece of advice for anyone else, anyone else out there too that's trying to put together a sales funnel. I'm going to follow along with what you guys are doing. So again, thanks so much for your time, uh, CJ and Ryan. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Felix. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. I left an anonymous tip because you can do that on their website to tell them about a product or, or a feature or whatever. And I said, hey, paracable.com is making paracord wrap lightning cables are really cool. Check it out. That was on a Thursday afternoon. And that night, I got an email from one of the editors at Mac Rumors who was very interested in the idea. And the story went live the next day. And then our lives changed forever. Basically, the next day, it was it was insanity. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.